Father, we ask you now that you would take your holy word and teach us through it. Lord, give us attentiveness, minds that are fixed on these truths. Help us to accept the seriousness of what is taught to us. Father, keep us from being indifferent to what your word says about your redemption. Make us to hear it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Connecting Israel to the church can be a tricky thing. You read a passage like this, and uh, you might find it to be one of those passages that uh, holds very little interest to you. Uh, You read about um, sacrifices and seven-day feasts and breaking necks of donkeys, and you kind of think, well, what's the point? How does this apply to me? And so we have to be good students of God's Word to rightly understand what is being taught and how we are to apply this. And certainly we understand that there's some differences between the audience that first heard this, the Israelites being led out of Egypt, and the audience that's in this room. There's a vast difference in a number of ways. Israel was a nation that was composed of people united by a common ethnicity, a common ancestor in Abraham. They are marked by a physical mark of circumcision, and they were brought out of Egypt by great signs and wonders and deliverance by the Lord. And further, they were promised a land that they were to inherit, the land of Canaan. That was going to be their new homeland, the place that they would dwell the place that they're being brought to. So they're a nation defined by borders and common ancestry. The church is an international group of people who lacks a common physical ancestor, lacks a common physical mark on our bodies and circumcision. We don't share a common territory, a common land, but we're still a people who have a common spiritual ancestry, a spiritual lineage. We possess the mark of the Holy Spirit with new hearts and redemption through the blood of Christ. While I have great respect for theologians who claim this, I don't share the view that the church is the true Israel or the new Israel, though I'm sympathetic to that position. However, I do find that as we go through the Old Testament and we look at the history of Israel, we find so much to learn, and so much that's so remarkably similar to our own spiritual experiences. Israel experienced the great redemption out of Egypt. The church has experienced great redemption from sin. And as we study the book of Exodus, although it's focused in on the nation of Israel, we would be wrong to close our Bibles at the end of Exodus and leave our study there. If you close your Bibles and do not continue your study of Exodus through the rest of Scripture and especially into the New Testament, then you will find the book of Exodus to be incomplete. There's a dot, dot, dot at the end of the book. There's a to be continued. And we find its continuation happens especially in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Paul The apostle to the Gentiles wrote to the Gentile church in Corinth about the Old Testament. He said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, 
Now these things happened to them, referring to Israel after he has described one of their experiences, Israel's experiences. He said, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So if we follow the Apostle Paul, we would be incomplete in our study if we just left the book of Exodus with Israel and we didn't consider what it has to say to us. Furthermore, Paul says regarding the Old Testament to Timothy, he says how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, he's referring to the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Timothy 3.15. And it's clear that Paul views the Old Testament scriptures as scriptures that prepare people, make them wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And so if we don't see Exodus leading us to faith in Christ, then we fail to be good students of the Word. The passages that we're looking at this morning are very, very Jewish. And I don't say that in a derogatory and insulting way. I mean that for ancient Israel, for national Israel, these passages were so crucial to who they were as a people, to their identity, For ancient Israel, these chapters were, in a sense, charter documents for them, explaining who they were and helping them to remember who they were. They define Israel through the activities that are given to them. And if you were being attentive as we read through this, there are three different activities that God gave to Israel to help them know who they were and remember who they were. It gave them the statute of the Passover in 1243. The statute of the Passover was a reminder to them about how God killed the firstborn sons of Egypt, but spared the firstborn sons of Israel when they sacrificed a lamb and painted the blood over the door of their house so that God would not send the destroyer into the house of those marked by the blood of the lamb. And so Israel was given this Passover feast to remember what God did in bringing them out of Egypt. The second activity that God gave them is the consecrating of the firstborn, where they would take both man and beast and dedicate it to the Lord. And this was going to be a perpetual activity for Israel that was to remind them that God spared the firstborn of Israel on that night of Passover, and now Israel belongs to the Lord. The third activity It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where for seven days, Israel was to not have any leaven and only eat unleavened bread. This was to be a perpetual festival commemorating that time when God led Israel out of Egypt rather rapidly. But remember, we're not national Israel. And the events in this chapter, the keeping of the Passover, the consecrating the firstborn, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are not on our church calendar. Once a month, John and I meet and have an elders meeting, and we go through the church calendar to see what's ahead. And we haven't, in the few years that we've been working together, put on the church calendar, Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, or somebody has a a child in the congregation, and we think, oh, we've got to have them um, dedicated by slaughtering a lamb. We don't schedule those things, and so either we are wildly disobedient or something has changed. 
something has happened. It's a new age. And this change came with Jesus. And he compares the old with the new. In Mark chapter 2, 21 and 22, Jesus puts it this way. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. With that, Jesus is acknowledging that with his coming, something new is here. That you can't fit into the old traditions and the old rituals. Otherwise, they will burst and you lose both the old wine wineskins and the new wine. And so Jesus inaugurates a new age. Something new has come. Rather, someone new, whose coming is from of old, of ancient days, who has changed things for us. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus brings three disciples up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he changes before them. He appears glorious before Peter, James, and John. And when he's on that mountain, and Peter, James, and John don't have a clue what to do, Moses and Elijah appear. And it says in Luke 9, verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law of the Old Testament. Elijah represents the prophets, and that combines the whole of the Old Testament system, the law and the prophets. And they appeared talking with Jesus. And it goes on and says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. When it says his departure, the word is literally exodus. They were speaking of his exodus. It is showing us that with Jesus heading towards the cross, he's inaugurating this new exodus, this thing that he is bringing to pass with the atonement for sins. And so the whole of the Old Testament, encompassed with Moses and Elijah, speak to the one who has prophesied to come, the culminating figure of history, Jesus Christ, and about his defining moment, his exodus, which turns out to be the very means of our exodus from sin and judgment. So if you history as a mountain peak, on the east side of the mountain you have ancient Israel, with all the laws and the traditions and commands that are there, and you've got the sunrise of the age of redemption coming. There's Israel, and at the peak of that mountain is the cross of Jesus Christ, the culminating figure of Israel history. And on the western slope of that mountain, towards the sunset of the culmination of all things, the fulfillment of God's plan, you have God's church, the unity of God's people redeemed. But at the peak of that mountain is the cross of Jesus Christ that overshadows both sides of the mountain. And so we have Old Testament history leading to the cross, and we have New Testament history always in the shadow of what Christ accomplished. And so as we think about these activities that God inaugurated for Israel, things that seem so foreign to us, they're all leading us to the cross of Christ. And furthermore, they're defining for Israel who they are. And this is important. As God helps Israel 
know who they are. The definition of them is what God has done for them. That, what's, that is what defines them. These activities boldly declare the great acts of God for Israel. All these things commemorate what God has done for them. Almost everything in our world wants to define us. The prominent spirit of the age is, could be described as subjectivism or perhaps being true to yourselfism, where we want to define who we are by our own standards. One um, instruction manual for being true to yourself says this, quote, being true to yourself means thinking and acting in ways that align with your own values and feelings rather than the values of others. If you're living true to yourself, you feel confident in your identity and you are pursuing goals that you know will lead to your own happiness, end quote. Another instruction manual on how to be true to yourself says, being true to yourself is a personal choice for truth, making choices about how you want to live. You have the total power to live your life any way you want and to be faithful and factual to the truth about you, end quote. That's basically advising us to be little gods who determine our own destiny and decide what values we want to follow and if anyone comes against those values then they're steering you away from being true to yourself and so you in the end are the one who defines who you are what you do what rituals you follow what's important but Israel in their history with these activities that God gives them are not given that luxury they're told who they are and who they are is defined by what God did for them You don't define you. God does. And the whole issue at hand is that God defines Israel. Furthermore, God defines the church. The defining moment of your life is not the moment that you decide what you are and what you want to be. The defining moment of your life is when God opens your eyes to see the great price that he paid at the cross to rescue you from your sins so that you would belong to him forever. That's the great defining moment of your life. And all of your life, in a sense, is to be reminded of what God has done for you and to live in light of that. For Israel, built into their system of life were these three activities that God gave them to remind them that they were a people rescued out of Egypt by the great act of God. That's Israel on the eastern slope of history. For us on the western slope of history, we want to look at these activities and see how they remind us of what God has done for us at the cross of Christ so that we know who we are as a people. And we'll see as we go through this that we are a people of promise and of the Lamb. We are a people of consecration and redemption. And we are a people of new beginnings and purity. So let's think about these three activities. First, let's know that we are a people of promise and the Lamb. The first activity God gave in this 
series of chapters is the activity of the Passover. And this was instituted because on the night that Israel is led out of Egypt, God went through Egypt and killed all the firstborn sons of Egypt. But the firstborn sons of Israel he spared because there was the blood of a lamb painted over the door. And so God gives, in verse 43 of chapter 12, the statute of the Passover. And he describes who is to eat of it and how to eat of it. And this is a a perpetual memorial of what God had done for them. And the Lord gives instructions about it, who can eat and who cannot eat. And this is most likely because as Israel goes out of Egypt, it says in chapter 12, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So you can picture the scene. There are 600,000 men, plus women and children, who are being led out of Egypt suddenly. Now, the Israelites were probably not the only ones who were enslaved at that time in Egypt. And so, most likely, there are others that hadn't been liking the Egyptian government very much, and they see all of these people just leaving all at once, and so they say, well, now's the time to go. And so they get up and go with Israel out of Egypt. A mixed multitude is following along. But it begs the question, who gets to be included in this special relationship with God that's reflected with the blood of a lamb? Is it everybody who decides to go out of Egypt that day? And the answer is no. Is it just if those multitude go out and see the Israelites cooking a lamb and think that smells good, I want some, can they go and eat of that lamb? Do they get the benefits of that? And the answer is no. The Israelites are commanded in 1247 to keep this. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. But the first verse, 43, says, no foreigner shall eat it. And that would be referring to most of that mixed multitude that just goes out and has no real connection with Israel. All along, as we've gone through this book of Exodus, you've heard that refrain, my people, my people. God has set his sight on a specific group of people that he declares are his and are going to benefit from his relationship to them. All Israel shall keep it, but no foreigner. You can't rip off a leg of the lamb and go give it to your foreign neighbor and say, here, have some. You can't break off a bone and give it to them. More generally, it says no uncircumcised person may eat of it. And this is the crucial point here. be worth your time to turn back to Genesis chapter 17 where God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Genesis 17 verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. God is setting up a promise for Abraham and for his descendants. 
And the promise is in verse 8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So Abraham's descendants are going to inherit the land of Canaan and also are going to be able to call God their God. And then verse 10, it says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. To show who belongs to this covenant and who doesn't, the children are to be circumcised. And then verse 14, it says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So these offspring of Abraham, marked by the sign of circumcision, are the ones who get to benefit from the fulfillment of God's promise that is experienced by being spared through the blood of the Lamb. And in order to commemorate that, they'll have this perpetual feast to remember what God did for them in fulfillment of the promise and bringing them out of Egypt. So Israel was led out of Egypt because God made a promise to Abraham. And those who benefited from the promise were marked by circumcision. Maybe the key verse is back in Exodus 12, verse 49, saying that there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. There was provision for others to come in and experience the blessing of this promise, but they couldn't just walk through any door that they wanted. A lot of people will have some sense of God and say, um, yeah, I believe in God. Um, God's a forgiving God. I don't really believe or follow Jesus, but God's a forgiving God, and so um, I know that he'll forgive me. I'll be good. I'm going to heaven. God's a loving and forgiving God. And while that's true that God is loving and forgiving, you don't get to enter into that love and forgiveness through any door that you choose. God has set a door and fixed it, and that is the only access point to the blessings of his promises. And that access door is through the Lord Jesus Christ. For Israel, there was an access door to the promise was that they had to be joined to the people of Israel marked by circumcision. And so anybody who wanted to come along with Israel and experience the benefits of the promise couldn't just waltz into God's promise any way they wanted. They had to align themselves with God's people, Israel. And at that time, they had to take on themselves the mark of circumcision. And so there was one law for the native and the sojourner. Not many paths, only one. So it's only the circumcised who may eat of it in fulfillment of the promise that God has given. Now from our western slope of the mountain of history, we know from the New Testament, very plain, no one enters into God's promises through circumcision now. And it's actually never really been that way. It's always been by faith. Romans 4 9 and 10 makes that very clear that Abraham had the promises given to him before he was circumcised and he received that by faith. And so if you really want to be a descendant of Abraham, you need to have faith in the promises of God expressed through Jesus Christ. The entry point is always Christ. And now the promise for us is not the inheritance of a specific land of Canaan. The promise that has been made is explained to us in 1 John 2.25. And this is the promise that he made to us, 
eternal life. That's the offer that's on the table, not just getting out of the slavery of Egypt, not just getting into a land flowing with milk and honey, but a life that's marked by the eternal, a life that has the equality of the eternal on it, a life that has the quantity of eternal to it that never ends. And the only entry point into inheriting that promise is through the Lamb of God. John one twenty nine has John the Baptist declaring, when he saw Jesus coming to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John chapter 19, it describes the crucifixion of Christ. We see the two criminals crucified on either side of Christ, and then we have him right in the middle. And the next day was the Sabbath, and they couldn't have people hanging on the cross that day. And so the Jews, it says in John 19.31, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. They wanted to expedite the death so they could get them off the cross sooner. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It's a direct fulfillment of the prescription for the Passover about the lamb that you shall not break any of its bones. In order for it to be the Passover lamb, its bones cannot be broken, and Jesus most truly fulfilled that. He is our Passover lamb. And because he's our lamb, we become people of the promise, and that's what defines us, a people who come by faith to the lamb of God, and we inherit the promise of eternal life. That's what defines you. People of promise centered on the Lamb. We need to know that. We also need to know that we are a people of consecration and redemption. Israel had another ritual that they needed to keep without being ritualistic. But this one was costly. It was the consecration of the firstborn. Because God killed the firstborn of Egypt and spared the firstborn of Israel, because he considered Israel his firstborn son, there was to be this ritual that would remember that the firstborns of Israel belonged to God. So, it says in chapter 13, verse 1, Consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. This word for consecrate is the same word that you would know as holy or sanctify. It's to take something and set it apart for special use. It has an exclusive and particular use. In this case, its use is to God. It belongs to him. And so anything that opened the womb, both man and beast, was to be of special use to the Lord. This is where the Levites come from, in a sense, because they end up overtaking this role 
of all the firstborn of Israel being dedicated to God, eventually God says, I'll take all of the Levites and they'll be long to me. Numbers chapter 3, verse 12 says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. The firstborn for a family kind of has a reputation. If you're the firstborn, you're usually thought to be the one who's responsible, trustworthy, you carry the burden of the family, you're the one who's going to share the large responsibility for overseeing the family, Uh, you kind of take care of the younger kids in the family. And the firstborn would be the one who inherits in Israel the larger portion of the inheritance. And so they have a larger responsibility, and in a sense, they represent the rest of the family. And so when God chooses out the firstborn to represent the family, the whole family then is, in a sense, consecrated to the Lord because the firstborn is. So all of Israel and all the families are represented before the Lord and consecrated to Him. That means they belong to Him. A good illustration of what it looks like to be dedicated to the Lord is found in the story of Hannah and Samuel. Uh, You know, Hannah was barren. She prayed to the Lord that the Lord would give her a child. And she promised or made this vow in 1 Samuel 1.11 and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. The Lord gave Hannah a little boy named Samuel and she dedicated him to the Lord and he went and served at the tabernacle. And each year she would bring him a little robe and it shows that this man or this boy was totally given to the Lord for his service, totally belonging to the Lord for whatever the Lord wants. For animals, because they would open the womb as well, it meant sacrifice. The animals were to be given to the Lord through sacrifice. They wouldn't be used for common use, for shearing or for farm work. They're given to the Lord in sacrifice. Except for unclean animals like donkeys. In chapter 13, verse 13, it says, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. So Israel had this ritual involved with the firstborn of donkeys where it was going to cost them something one way or another. Uh, If they wanted to keep the donkey, they needed to sacrifice a lamb. If they didn't want to sacrifice a lamb, they needed to break the neck of the donkey. One way or another, there was going to be a cost involved. Donkeys were unclean, and so they couldn't be sacrificed. They couldn't be offered to the Lord in that way. But it appears so were sons. It's not very pleasant to be compared to a donkey. Generally, we try to avoid uh, names that associate us with donkeys. And yet, right after, in verse 13, describing what happens to a donkey... 
It also says, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. The same thing that you have to do for the donkey, you have to do for your sons. You have to redeem them with a lamb. Why is that? The implication is crystal clear. We're as unclean as donkeys. We need a lamb to take our place. And only then can that child really be offered to the Lord, not in a human sacrifice, that doesn't enter the mind of the Lord, but in dedicated service to Him. But before you can do that, you have to be redeemed, you have to be bought, you have to be purchased. So for Israel, God set up this whole system to remind them of redemption being bought and of consecration being devoted to service to God. Israel was to be known to be a people redeemed and consecrated. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the sweetest words to you is the word redemption. You know that you owed God a debt that you could never pay, and you know Christ interposed his blood to pay that debt for you, and so you've been bought back from the judgment that you rightly deserve. You've been redeemed. In 1 Peter 1.18, it says that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And once you are redeemed, the point is you belong to somebody else now. You are consecrated. This is probably one of the most important truths for your sanctification, is knowing that in your redemption, a price was paid to buy you to belong to somebody now. And the point is that you don't belong to yourself any longer. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians seven twenty three. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Brothers and sisters, if you've been purchased by Christ, you don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to this world. You belong to God. And so when you wake up in the morning, the question on your mind ought not to be, what do I want to do with my day? Your question ought to be, what does God want me to do with my day? What does God want me to do with my life? He's my master and my Lord, and I stand here to serve Him because He bought me and I belong to Him. I'm consecrated to Him. I've been redeemed, set apart for holy use unto the Lord. And so we act, as Romans 12 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. You have to know that you are redeemed and consecrated. You've been bought and now you belong to God. We don't have a ritual sacrifice. We don't have to break a donkey's neck any longer. We've had the perfect blood of Christ 
shed for us. We've been purchased and we have to realize that now we belong to Him. So glorify God in your body. So we know that we're a people of promise and a people of the Lamb. We're a people of redemption and a people who've been consecrated. We also need to know that we're a people of new beginnings who leave the old behind. There's one more activity for Israel here. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In chapter 13, verse 6, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. The reason for this is that when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he brought them so quickly that they didn't have time to even leaven their bread. And so they had to pack up their kneading bowl and put that on their packs, and they brought the bread because they needed something to eat on the way, but it wouldn't be leavened because it happened so quickly. And so this event was to be commemorated by this Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they're to celebrate it annually in the first month or of the month that became the first month for them. Back in chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord says that this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And now it's called this month of Abib. Later, it's called the month of Nisan. That gets changed during the exile. But this celebration of just eating unleavened bread in commemoration of the Lord bringing them out was a celebration that commemorated both their new year and their independence. It was New Year's Day and Independence Day rolled into one for Israel. And this is a big deal for them to remember how the Lord brought them out. Some traditions developed this where there would almost be a game that would be played where you try to get leaven out of your house, uh, find the leaven and get it out of your house because you can't have it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread for those seven days. Some people argue that that leaven symbolizes sin. You can get the sin out of your house, get the sin out of your life, and certainly that seems to be appropriate. But I think that it represents something a little bit deeper Leaven represents something old and permeating. The way that leaven worked in Israel was that you would preserve a a batch of old dough and it would ferment. And then you'd take that piece of old dough and you'd put it into the new dough and you'd knead it into the dough and it would leaven the whole thing so that the whole dough is now leavened. Take a bit of the old, mix it with the new. When Israel left Egypt, suddenly they didn't have time to do that. They just had to take the new dough for their new year and their new existence as people bought back from slavery. And so Israel now, in a commemorative celebration, remembers their new year, their new life, their new dough. It's newness that's being referred to. And as Israel celebrates this in verse 8 of chapter 13, you shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me 
when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. Some have wrongly interpreted that to mean that you need to take some sort of box, put a little piece of scripture in it, and attach it to your forehead or your your wrist. That's not what it's saying. The memorial is the feast of unleavened bread. That is the way that you remember what God has done for you. This is what the Lord did for me, is what you need to tell your sons, your children. This whole newness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, again, is here writing to a church that isn't doing so well. There are a lot of problems in the church at Corinth. One of the problems is sexual immorality. That's just one of many. And Paul gives them instructions about this. This is a Gentile church. And he says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Coming to Christ is described as being born again, having new birth, new life. And we see that the way we are to now observe that feast of unleavened bread is not by making a week of our life, of our year, devoted to eating no bread with leaven in it. Now he's saying that with the coming of Christ, who is our Passover lamb, new life has been brought to those who follow him. And with that new life, you need to cleanse out the leaven, for you are unleavened. And so now get rid of the leaven of malice and evil. Galatians 1.4 says that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Israel is being led out of Egypt 
giving a new year, a new lease on life, and a festival that could, would commemorate what God has done. For us who are in Christ, you've been given a new life. And that new life is to be marked by sincerity and truth, by godliness. And we celebrate the festival by leaving behind our old manner of lives. Ephesians 4 says that we are to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You've been given new life. Live in that new life. Don't bring the old along. Don't need that into your life. You'll find that as Israel is brought out of Egypt, and they really were, they're totally brought out. It's not like they had summer homes left in Egypt. They're gone. But as they proceed on their journeys to the promised land, although their bodies had left Egypt, do you remember? They wanted to go back. Their hearts were still there. This is a problem. Because Egypt is old. And living in the promises of God is new. And the old and the new cannot be mixed. For us who have been redeemed by Christ and set apart to Him and given new life, we have to leave the old behind. But doesn't your heart sometimes want to go back? Brothers and sisters, leave it behind. Live a life without leaven because you have a new life in Christ. So follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us um, new life in Christ. Totally and completely new And Lord, we rejoice in that newness. Think back in my old life and just how awful it was. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for rescuing so many here, giving them new life. And Lord, would you now help us to live as people of your promise, centered on the Lamb, giving our whole lives to you and living in the newness of life and leaving the old behind. Help us, Lord, to do that. Father, we fail in this. Sorry, Lord, that we do fail and that the old life comes back into us at times more often than it should. Help us, Father, to live in the new life, to put on the new man in Christ. Strengthen us this week, Lord, for that. May you be pleased in our lives. We thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us. You've rescued us. You've given us new life. It's all because of you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.